Testing. Oh, I'm, I'm, it's very hot, honey. Turn it down quite a bit. Just make sure your levels are about the same as this right here. Well, you might have to turn this one up a little bit. Watch your levels. And your levels. You can't hear. Testing one. You just can't hear this one. I might have it the wrong plug. Hold on. Hold on. Testing one, two, now it's on. This should be number one. Okay, and it should be this, this volume here. Up and down, testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. You gotta hurry, babe. Thank you. 
Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning on this another beautiful, bright Sunday morning. We're glad you're here to worship with us. We ask that the Lord would bless you as you've come. Announcements. Um, again, offering envelopes in the offering box. Andrea's number. Days of praise um, and acts and facts are here on the foyer table. Most of you know um, Sabra Loker went home to be with the Lord last Tuesday, so you'll note the funeral uh, service times there and viewing. That's at um, Swartz Creek. Anything else this morning that I've omitted? If not, then I'll direct you to Isaiah 53 for the meditation.
a little postscript to um, uh, Sabra's announcement. There will be, uh, I'll call it a reception, uh, following the service uh, with food uh, and some fellowship then with the family and friends. So there will be that. And also, um, we're making plans for um, something on Easter Sunday morning. I'm not sure exact, exactly what that'll be, but uh, there'll be uh, perhaps an additional service. So be mindful of that. Okay, let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service. Ken, would you mind asking the Lord to bless our service today? We take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 558, 558 in the Red Trinity. Five, five, eight in the red. someone already sorry got me before service <laughs> and he right can five six nine in the brown it's the battle hymn of the republic in the brown five six nine in the brown <clears throat>
you have a reason for this, him this morning? I forgot to ask. Absolutely. Great. <clears throat> Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Ephesians, the first chapter. We'll be reading 1 through 14, 18, 17 in the Pew Bible. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You take your red hymnal once again and turn to number 545, 545 in the red. We had a discussion about this hymn on Friday night and I did not know it but I wasn't the only one in the room that didn't know it. 545.
scripture text this morning is Ephesians chapter 1. As you can see, we are trying some new things this morning and making transition from my old body. <laughs> so uh, I hope you can bear with that. And uh, I think it will make it easier for me as well. Today I am uh, taking a departure from the previous series. And I want to do this. I'm calling this like a pre-series to Easter, which is coming up. So, we want to look at God's decrees to save, the decree to save, and understand through this that salvation is of God's sovereign doing. There is no danger in us being lost if we're saved by God, because it was from grace from the beginning through the process and it's going to be grace that sustains us carries us all the way through to the end I'm sorry that the Arminian brethren don't understand that so they live in fear of losing their salvation if they do something really bad and that's not a license for us to do things really bad but it is to say God died for the bad he died for the wicked and that is what we are and to say that uh, his uh, atonement was ineffectual, that uh, we're not going to make it, is a dishonor to God and his grace and the power of his shed blood through his son. I mean, a payment is a payment. And if it is received by faith and through repentance, God has to keep his word. He just has to. And we are the beneficiaries. So we're going to look at uh, a number of the decrees of God. Today the decree of God to save deals with the pre-planning and determination of God to call from the world of sinners a people for his own name's sake. In our next study we're going to look at the day we first believed which will deal with the time-space experience of our salvation and how God brought us to faith and repentance through the preaching of the gospel or testimony of a friend, the reading of a tract, or however the Lord did that, but always through the gospel. We're not saved in a vacuum somewhere. And then our last message, I'm going to be dealing with the day of our redemption, which is a consideration of the return of the living Christ, the gathering of his people to him, and the future glory which awaits us. So three messages uh, kind of uh, going along with the season of the year and the re remembrance of Resurrection Sunday. So as we come to our study today, let's ask for the Lord's enablement and instruction from his word. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Uh, there have been many attempts throughout the years to try to destroy your word, Bible burnings, killing of preachers, dis disdain for the prophets. Lord, we just thank you that you have preserved your word safe for us and that we have an accurate record 
your word was not destroyed. It was preserved. That was not by accident. But it was intended by your grace and accomplished by your grace. And for that, we give you great thanks. Be with us today, instructing us as believers to grow in our faith. And if there's some here that don't know you, may this be the day that you find them and draw them effectually into your kingdom. Grant them the repentance they don't have and the faith they don't have to see and appreciate the great atoning work of Jesus the Savior. In Christ's name, we pray these things with thanksgiving. Amen. We're looking today at God's decree to save. The first thing I want to talk about is the concept of decree. You can pretty well tell. It's a kingly term conveying the idea that a dictum, a determination, a law is being given from a ruler in regard to his intentions either for his subjects or for those he intends to make his subjects. We read of Joseph. So Joseph established it as a law. Greek uh, or the Hebrew word uh, means a decree. Concerning land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. Genesis 47, verse 26. You remember that uh, Joseph was elevated to vice regions of Egypt, uh, just under Pharaoh. But you see in this the ongoing nature of the decree. Born out even more when we come to God's decrees. Job 28, verse 26 says, He made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm. So the laws of nature are set in place by the decrees of God. Psalm 148, verse 6, in speaking of the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the shining stars, He commanded and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever. He gave a decree that will never pass away. That's why we have a sun, a moon, and stars, and so on. Jeremiah locks the fate of God's people into this decree saying this is what the Lord says he who appoints the sun to shine by day who declares the moon and the stars to shine by night who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar the Lord Almighty is his name only if these decrees vanish from my sight declares the Lord will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me Jeremiah 31 verse 35 and 36 so the existence of Israel as a nation is locked into the solid decrees of God concerning the sun, the moon, the stars, the seas, which have been going on for, what, thousands of years? Thousands of years. Finally, and most important of all, the Hebrew decree, that word is used of God's law, his word. When Jethro asked Moses why he spent the whole day counseling people, this was his answer. 
because the people come to seek God's will, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Exodus 18, verse 16. So God's word is a statue which takes on the characteristic of a decree. And we remember elsewhere, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so is my word that goes from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Isaiah 55, verse 10. The word decreed isn't found there, but the idea is that the word of God is like a decree. It is going to accomplish. And many more references could be cited, but I think you get the idea that the Bible talks about a decree, whether of men or of God. The idea is one of a law given by fiat, an authoritative pronouncement which is binding because the authority behind it guarantees it. We would also surmise that any decree is only as binding as the authority behind it. Joseph's decree, for example, concerning the 5% tax on the land of Egypt was only binding so long as the Pharaoh and Egyptian government for whom he spoke existed. So sometimes there's a limitation there. But what about now? Well, Joseph is long gone, right? He's dead and gone. And so are the Pharaohs, and so is their form of government. Let's bring it over, however, into, the, into deity. What about God and his decrees concerning the rain and the snow? What of his decrees concerning the heavenly bodies? Does it not still rain and snow and water the earth and cause the vegetation to bud and to grow? And are the sun and the moon and the stars still operative? What about the decree concerning God's word, first spoken, then written down? Has the years of persecution and Bible burning obliterated God's message to humanity? Not at all. They made their attempts, but we still have the word of God. The Bible lives on while the persecutors have died. <laughs> and they have met their maker in a horrendous encounter. Now that is because God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. We are temporal. Having both a beginning and an end. Unlike human authorities behind decrees, Jeremiah identifies the author of biblical decrees saying, The Lord Almighty is His name. Jeremiah 31 verse 35. So we see the Bible does attribute decrees to God. And in his case, those decrees are never frustrated. But it still remains to prove if God decreed to save the people for his own. That's my next point. God's decree to save. We could approach this a number of ways. We can look for statements that specifically speak of God's decrees. 
we can examine some texts which don't use the word, but certainly explain God's will in that way. So let's talk about God's decree to save that is so stated. In 1 Chronicles 16, we have David's psalm of thanks to God, in which he enjoins the people of God to glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. O descendants of Israel, his servants, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are on all the earth. We remember his covenant forever, the word he commands for a thousand generations. By the way, one generation is 38 years, so a thousand generations, 38. One thousand generations is 38,000 years. It's mind-boggling. It's a metaphor, of course. We have a long ways to go. But the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob by a decree, I'm reading scripture, to Israel, the everlasting covenant, sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim his salvation day after day, declare his glory among the nations. The covenant to Abraham promised what? You remember your Bible history. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Galatians 3.8 The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham saying all nations will be blessed through you. Not just the Jewish people but all nations. So, those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So clearly, this covenant was a promise of God to those David identified as Jacob, his chosen ones, confirmed to Isaac by oath to Jacob by decree that salvation would come to all who, like Abraham, exhibited the faith of Abraham. Paul words it this way. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Wow. And heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, verse 29. So we have in Scripture a decree to save the nations. Now, not every last person in a nation, but the nations, the Gentiles. In another, Psalm 2, we have a text in which the psalmist describes the rebellion of the nations against God and His anointed, even to the point of trying to overthrow God's rule and trying to overthrow His salvation. Let me read it for you. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers against rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one, the Christ. Verse 2. But the sovereign Lord, I'm still reading scripture, but the sovereign Lord enthroned in heaven laughs 
at their efforts and scorns their attempt. Verse 4. He does more. Verse 5. He rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be wise. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Lest He be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. You know, that's an Old Testament way of saying preach the gospel. For we say to the nations, to the peoples as well, repent of your rebellion, kiss the Son, that is, submit to His Lordship, because there is a description, or excuse me, a destruction to be avoided and a blessed refuge to be obtained in Christ. God isn't going to endure our insolence forever and ever. He's not going to abide our sin forever. Judgment Day is on the horizon. And what is important here is that rebellion and all attempts to overthrow the work of God's anointed, the Christ, notwithstanding, God has nonetheless decreed His Son, Jesus, as His King, destined to subdue a people from the nations and to bring them into blessed refuge that He promised to those who serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Psalm 2, verse 11. He has decreed it, so it will be so. One New Testament text from Jesus himself is very interesting. I'm talking about his impending crucifixion, which is essential payment for salvation. He states in Luke 22, 22, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. As it has been decreed. No detail of salvation eludes the decree of God. No detail. Peter told the crowd in Acts 2 verse 23, This man, that is Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And in Acts 4 verse 27, believers list Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews as co-conspirators in Jesus' death. And they write, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That's just another way, God, you decreed it. All the references are recording, are alluding to God's decree to save. 
these guys thought they were just doing their own thing, and they were. But in doing their own thing, they did exactly what God decreed would happen. Now, there are other scriptures where the term which explains God's work in salvation. In our text, for example, verse 4 states that God chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world. Now, it's not the word decree, but it's just as definitive. What does it mean to be in Christ? Is that not one of the Bible expressions to describe the saved? Well, of course it is. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Or again, Romans 12, verse 5. So in Christ... We who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Or 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. Or Colossians 1, verse 2. To the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. What about this verb, chose? Also, it's noun derivative, chosen. Doesn't this show a determination on God's part? God chose Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. He chose Israel to be that nation. He chose the prophets. He chose the sacrificial system. He chose Moses and Aaron to lead his people out of Egypt. He chose David over Saul as king. Samuel over Eli as priest. He chose Jerusalem as the place for his name. He chose Solomon over David to build the temple. God chooses, 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 chooses many things. So why is it so surprising that he would do the same when we come to new covenant salvation? Jesus taught that God would cut short the end time days of tribulation else no one would survive and his stated reason is this for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen he will shorten those days Mark 13 verse 20 again in John 13 Jesus alludes to Judas the betrayer saying I am not referring to all of you I know who I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scriptures. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Verse 18. So he makes a distinction between a professing disciple and a true disciple, the latter being those whom Christ himself has chosen to life. One of the beautiful statements on God's choice is John 15 Verse 16, I love this. He's talking to his disciples. And he says, you did not choose me. I wonder if our million brethren have ever read this verse. You did not choose me, but I chose you. 
and appointed you to go and to bear fruit. And then in verse 19, he says it again. I have chosen you out of the world. It is from this decision of God to choose a people for salvation that labels elect and chosen are used by the apostles. That's how they get those labels. To the Thessalonian church, Paul wrote this, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved. There it is. That's just as clear as you can make it. From the beginning... You weren't even around in the beginning. You were just a thought in the mind of God. But from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 and 14. Paul, as a chained prisoner, said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. Peter said, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Could anything be more clear? Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this choosing and this calling has to do with the mercy of salvation. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10. I would put it this way, every serious Bible student believes in the doctrine of election. They have to because it's in the book. It's the perceptions of elections, however, that differ. The perceptions. The Bible declares that the elect, the elect are of God's choosing, which is makes sense in the use of the word. There are two more terms in our text that hold a lot of weight. Verse 5. In love God predestinated us, predestined us to be adopted. Predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus, in accordance with His pleasure and His will. Also verse 11. Daniel 4, verse 35. God does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth, and no one can hold back His hand and say to Him, What have you done? You go, are we, we're going to question God? Really? Boy, the arrogance of that. 
The word predestined in English, in English, means to determine the destiny of something beforehand. The Greek word, prosridzo, is a compound, means to limit in advance. Hence, to work out beforehand. To determine before. To foreordain something. It's the same word we read in Acts 4, verse 28, when Peter said of the co-conspirators who crucified Jesus, they did what your power and will, proridzo, had declared beforehand <coughs> should happen. Wow. It was a planned outcome by God. So too, God has planned outcomes for all believers. All right, so we ask the question. What did God pre-plan for us? He says, to be adopted as his sons. And the daughters, too, of course. Now, isn't that just another way of saying to be saved and brought into his family? Sounds like it to me. And what was the driving motive? Did God, I've heard this in evangelistic services, did God look down the corridors of history of time and take note of those who would believe in Jesus and when they heard the gospel they would believe and then on the basis of their choice he chose them. How absurd is that? Who's God here in this scenario? No, verse 5, verse 11, make it clear that God's predestination was solely the outworking of that plan which conforms everything to his will, not your will, not my will. Say, he can't do that. You're going to tell God, just that he can't do with his creation he wants to do with his creation think about adoption for the moment <clears throat> who ever heard of an adoption in which a child in an orphanage let's say fixes his or her sight on visiting prospective parents and says to the house administrator um I'll take the couple in the blue suit and the green dress. Fill out the paperwork and I'll be on my way. Ever hear of an adoption like that? Now that's absurd. Orphanages are filled with children whom no one wants. And they will live as orphans in those places until their 18th birthday, at which time the law says they must be freed and allowed to go and live on their own. 
The adoption of God is no less His choice. In fact, twice in our text we are told that He predestined us to be His. Now I want you to think about something. Predestined us to be His. And who are we? Well, I want you to think not of that child with the bright smile and the silky hair and the spotless clothes and the impeccable manners, but rather of that deformed child with the blind eye and the deaf ear and the hair lip and the crippled foot and the withered hand and an attitude of bitterness and defiance and hatred for you. And then you will have a better picture of why the choice of adoption must be predetermined by the will of God and not by that of the sinner. You say, well, I think you're painting something that's really black that isn't there. You want to test this from Scripture? I'm going to give you a text. You've got three that's on your own. I don't have time. Ezekiel 16, verse 1 and following. It talks about Israel as the aborted child squirming in its blood in the field and no one wants it. That's us. It's aborted. It's dying. And God passes by and says, what? Live. Live. So we have a lot of biblical evidence to support the truth that God has decreed salvation. He's decreed it. Some say, okay, okay, I can see that. God has determined to save a people for his name. But I do not think that election and predestination is, is individualized. It's more like, yeah, more like a general choosing connected to the invitation of the gospel. Those who respond to the gospel are elect. Those who don't aren't. Well, apart from the fact that we are back to the question of what motivates God in his choices, our will or his, I want you to consider the personalness of salvation. And I'm referring to the Lamb's Book of Life. As early, you might think this is just a New Testament teaching. It's not. As early as Exodus 32:32, we with God not to obliterate the nation of Israel for their idolatry. Well, I certainly deserved any judgment God would have handed out. But Moses pleads, "But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, blot me out of the book that you have written." Wow. Moses gets kudos for compassion. He's saying, Lord, take me. Don't destroy Israel. Take me. He gets A for compassion, but F for theology. Because the book to which he refers, as we shall see, is the registry of God's chosen people. They are secure because for them God has blotted out, not them, but their sin, their sin. 
Let me give you two texts, and I can't take time to look them up, but you can look them up. Isaiah 43, verse 25, and Psalm 51, verse 1. When we come to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 3, verse 5 and following states, You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes... He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name, the individual, before my Father and the angels. The book of life is found in other texts. The Messianic Psalm 69, verse 20 and following. David's a appeal to God against his unjust tormentors is this. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Praise David. The idea here that they are banned from the book of life. Please see to it, Lord, that it stays that way. And never list them in the registry of the righteous. I am in pain and distress. May your salvation, O God, protect me. There is no place for salvation for the wicked. And that's what David is praying. In Philippians 4 verse 3, he lists two women of that church, Iodica and Sintuchi who were squabbling with each other. Yet along with Clement and others, they were Paul's fellow workers in the gospel. And Paul makes the church, asks the church, rather, to help these people. Here's what he says. Help those people whose names are in the book of life. So here, names stands for the people listed by name in Paul's appeal. They were real people in God's registry. Daniel prophesies of the end of the age in Daniel 12, verse 1. And he says, At that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, and he calls it the book of truth, Daniel 10, verse 21, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And Revelation 20 concurs, verse 12, writes John, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The beast worshipers in Revelation 13, verse 8, are said to be all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb. Revelation 21, verse 27. 
That describes heaven's citizens. Nothing impure will ever enter it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Some will say, well, maybe their names were written in the book of life the hour they believed in Christ, and that's how their names got there. No, no. Jesus told his disciples not to rejoice because the demons were subject to them, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. When did that occur? Revelation 17, verse 8 indicates, rather, excuse me, identifies Antichrist worshipers as those whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the Oh, so you have two groups, one whose names are written in, another group whose names are not written in. When did God register the names of his people? From the creation of the world. When did God choose the people he would adopt as sons and daughters? Our text, verse 4. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. When in the mind of God did Christ pay the awful debt of sin for his people so that they could be forgiven <coughs> and registered with God's people? Peter describes Jesus as a lamb without blemish or defect he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. 1 Peter 1, verse 19 and 20. Revelation 13, verse 8, describes Jesus as the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Oh my, think about this. A people chosen before the creation of the world a people registered in the Lamb's book of life from the creation of the world, and a Savior slain from the creation of the world. <clears throat> what do all of these references to the time before the creation of the world, what do they indicate? Titus 1 verse 2 and following explains that the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth might rest on the hope, the assurance of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he has brought his word to light. This seems to me that God was very determined to save people. Save them by name. Save them in time-space history. And based on His holy will, not their activities, including faith and repentance, which aren't theirs anyway, they're gifts of God.
What are the implications of God's decree to save? Well, number one, your salvation was not an afterthought with God. That's a wonderful truth. But it was pre-planned as intricately as any engineer would design a blueprint for an elaborate edifice. Your salvation was not an accident. It was not left to the fickle finger of fate. It was ordained by God. Secondly, you're loved by God in such a special way. And as an adopted son and daughter, you're loved as Christ is loved by the Father. Remember Jesus' prayer? Let me read it for you. Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you gave me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. John 17, verse 24. Verse 9, he said, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. You're loved in a special way. That's what the decrees of God mean. Thirdly, they mean that all the references to before the creation of the world, that's that expression, indicate that the decision to count you among the chosen of God was accomplished in the pre-dawn period before time and space were realities. You were non-existent except in the mind of God. You could not have influenced God's decision in any way, shape, or form because you were non-entity, a thought, nothing more. This is Paul's point in Romans 9, verse 10. He says, Rebekah's children had one and the same father, Isaac. Yet... Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Conclusion, verse 16. I'm still reading scripture. It, God's election, does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Just as Jacob was chosen over Esau before either could demonstrate good or bad behavior, so God's choice of you for his adopted son or daughter had nothing to do with your performance record. You were just a thought in the mind of God. And then a fourth implication. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved. 
Could anything be more clear? God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. I think election should make us be thankful, grateful people, because we know that we were just as wicked, just as hellbound as any other person of the world. God made us different, not us. It's called grace. A fifth implication. And this is important for one of us, for all of us to consider because we've heard accounts to the contrary. It is this. The number of the elect is not insignificant. It's not teeny-weeny at all. I love this. Revelation 5, or 6 and following, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nature... You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Revelation 7 verse 9 calls them a great multitude that no one can count. The elect are not a teeny weeny group. You can't number them. And then finally, because election is of God's grace from start to finish, and your heavenly citizenship was recorded in prehistory, and your name recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life, nothing in all creation, I'm reading scripture, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, verse 39. The Arminians are right if, if, if in salvation, faith and repentance is of our doing. And they say, well, I believed in Jesus and that's why I'm saved. But I can renounce Jesus and be unsaved. That's consistent with their theology. we need to be consistent with ours. God chose us before the creation of the world. God did it. God made us his people. God drew us into his kingdom. He made us part of his family. And God keeps us there, safe and sound. And none of the forces of hell, Satan or this world, can pull us out of the hand of Almighty God. Jesus says so in Matthew 24. Well, what about gospel intention and faith and repentance and all that? Well, come here next week and we'll talk about those things.
Our Lord, we just thank you and praise you for your grace to us in Christ, that salvation is of grace. It's not something we orchestrated. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to trust you. Now, we need faith. We need to trust you. We need to repent of our sin. All of these things are true. But as we'll see in our study to come, even faith and repentance are the gifts of God. If there's one here that's outside of the pale of your forgiveness, if they're still unsaved, Lord, draw them to you today. Grant them the faith they don't have and the repentance of sin that they don't want to do and draw them effectually into your kingdom. Give them light that they don't have because they're in darkness. Dispel the darkness. Shine, Lord, the light of the gospel in their hearts. The brightness of Jesus. May he overcome them with truth and knowledge and understanding. And for us who have perhaps not understand uh, all of the uh, intricacies of our salvation, help us to run deeper into some of these things and to see that we're not an accident. We were decreed before the creation of the world to be your children. That means on purpose, on purpose, God's purpose, not ours, to the praise and glory of your grace. And we thank you and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't have my bulletin. What's the last hymn? What is it? 546 in the brown? In the Trinity. Okay. Thank you. you stand with me when you find the hymn number 546 in the red trinity
So I'm going to see my friends. I'm going to see my mom and dad. talk about me. 